Um, it, is, uh, it is nice to be back. Holidays are a, a good thing. I like them, but I also it's nice to be back. Um, and I'll say that because next week you might doubt that because I'll not be here again. Uh, <laughs> I've, not gone, I've not run away and I've not gone on holiday again. Um, I'll be down in Hamilton. Um, congregations there who don't have a minister, they have a locum taking their services, but next Sunday it's communion, and in the Church of Scotland, lonely, those who have been ordained as ministers of words and sacrament have the magic touch that can do communion. Um, and if that sounds disparaging about the Church of Scotland's position on who administers communion, it was meant to. Um, however, um, people have been bound by such things, so I have to, uh, not have to, I've agreed to help out to um, do communion at a services in Hamilton next Sunday morning. <clears throat> Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together, there I am with them. If we were to look at the subsequent history of the Christian church and the 2,000 years or so since Jesus said that, we might suppose that maybe Jesus had said, where two or three are gathered together, there are two or three or maybe even four different opinions. Well, not exactly, for there's a lot more to the story and the history of the church than division, dissension, disagreement, and so on. But a large amount of diversity exists. The church through the 2,000 years of our history has faced new issues, new challenges, and has had to find ways between sticking to what she knows and doing new things, and has to find a way of doing that as a body of people who have different tastes, different preferences, who have different experiences that shape how we see things and what we're looking for. I want to make two preliminary comments first. And the first is to say that it seems to me that one of the signs of a church having life, one of the signs of a church being alive, is that that church will be being confronted by these kind of questions. How do we do this? How do we do it so it's more fruitful? How do we do it differently? How do we handle these kind of things? The church that's not having that coming by its way is a church that is not engaged in the task of taking the gospel into the world. Because inevitably when we seek to take the gospel into the world, that kind of question arises. And so if we've never had to think about the how and why we do things, then it's because we're not following Jesus. The church is not some waiting room sitting around for heaven to come. The church is a commissioned, a sent people called to serve Jesus in the world. And as we serve Jesus in a changing, developing, growing world, so issues change. And one of the key early steps is how we meet and make contact with others and how we respond to those who are not yet followers of Jesus. So it's a good thing that these issues and challenges are there. My second preliminary comment is to say that the way we do things, the way we face questions and challenges of each era, is not to be by some kind of voting system where we find out what's most popular. Rather, we are to wrestle with what the Bible teaches 
and what that means for us today. One of the very greatest um, frustrations and sadnesses of my Christian life has been the number of times I hear people putting things forward in terms of it ought to be this way, it ought to be done like that, without any reference to, to Scripture. I'm not sure on what basis then we, we think we have the, the right to say to others, this is what we should do, or this is the way we should be. I even found myself, against my better judgment now, um, caught up in a discussion on social media this week about ministers wearing gowns, and you can tell where my position was on that. But the frustration was that for those advocating um, these costumes, um, not one single Bible point or Bible reference was being offered. We, 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 on what basis then? The church is not to say, let's, let's, let's see what we, in general we think. We, we are to be governed by the Scriptures. And if we can't explain and, and base something on Scriptures, and of course there will be different interpretations. That's, that's, that's a, if we don't base things on Scripture, then we have nothing at all to go on. There are always plenty of issues and challenges in there, new ones, and they're to be sorted out, or we have to try to address them, address them from the Scriptures. And it says, and aside from, from tonight and for a few weeks on Sunday evenings, we want to take a, a look at the Bible and whether we can trust it and some of the issues and problems around that. We don't suppose that it's straightforward and easy. And as I say, we're giving a few Sunday evenings to that. And so whether or not you've been a, an, or whether you intend to be part of evening services, I underline the opportunity for this series because it's so frustrating so annoying that time and again people say it should be this way or it should be that way or we should do it this way without any reference at all to scriptures. It's not our church, it's Jesus' church. The church didn't come about by some folks getting together and saying we need a bit more religion in our lives, let's start meeting on Sunday morning. The church came about in response to people hearing that message of Jesus, meeting the living Jesus, and responding to him. So these two preliminary comments, there will always be new issues and challenges if we're alive at all. And secondly, they are to be addressed on the basis of faith that we have in the Scriptures. This morning's task is to look at the responsibility and to whether we change or expect others to change to fit in with us. Now, in Acts chapter 15, we, the context, of course, is that Christian, Christianity grew out of what we regard as the Old Testament. The teaching was there, as a, and it was a development of what the Creator God had, been, had promised and had been doing to restore humanity after the fall. Jesus was a Jew. His first disciples were Jews. And they had been brought up in the Jewish faith. The earliest church was in Jerusalem. But now by Acts chapter 15, there's a set of new challenges. 
Jesus had sent his followers into all the world. And in obedience to that, some of them had gone, and some in the non-Jewish world, some of the Gentiles, were responding to this gospel. And as the non-Jews responded to the good news, a question arose. Folks in the church were saying, hold on a minute. You see these new believers? Do you see these people who have become Christians and who didn't grow up in Jerusalem, who didn't grow up in the Jewish faith like us? Well, for one thing, they've not been circumcised. So maybe, maybe we need to circumcise them. Maybe since that's the way the faith began, since it began through the, this, the teaching from Genesis onwards, maybe, maybe we need to get these guys to go back to, to there and, and take the steps of being circumcised before they can properly be followers of Jesus. Well, you can maybe understand why people were thinking that way. Every every believer they knew, or every male believer they knew rather, had been circumcised. It was it was part of the it was part of the um, the culture, part of the way of doing things. They didn't know anyone else. Jesus himself had been as well. So some of them began to insist on it. Others were saying, "Hold on a minute." Now, it's not just a we've always done it that way kind of thing here. But more significantly and more of a challenge, it was, can we really throw aside something that seems to us to be so important, circumcision, and so meaningful? Surely these newcomers, these Gentiles, have to adapt to what we've come to know and love. And so that's the question that was kicking around when this council at Jerusalem met in Acts chapter 15. The council came because this was the question. There's a living church, a living faith, therefore new issues, new questions arise. And this particular new issue and new question was, do we have to circumcise these Gentiles who are becoming Christians? And in Acts chapter 15, in the passage that Jean read for us, there are three key principles. Number one, we have to identify what is the issue that's at stake. You see, some of the Jewish believers, we're told, were insisting that circumcision should still be expected. Otherwise, it says, verse 1, there are folks then you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved unless you subscribe to circumcision. And so they said again, verse 5, so the Gentiles must be circumcised. So what's the issue? The issue then is really whether Jesus is sufficiently a savior. Whether to be saved you need faith in Jesus and following Jesus plus circumcision or whether in fact believing in Jesus and trusting Jesus and following Jesus is enough for salvation. Now, if it's Jesus plus circumcision, then Jesus has not done enough to be a savior. He's done pretty well. Good job, Jesus, but you haven't quite been savior of the world because we need to add something else onto it. We need to add, in this case, circumcision. And unless we get that, there's no salvation. That's what they're saying, verse 1 and verse 5. Now, against that, 
Some of the disciples were saying, well, hold on. That, that means that it's what Jesus has done for us plus what we do, circumcise. But the gospel surely is, it's by grace. Only by grace can we enter, we've just sang. It's all about grace. It's all about the work of God. Therefore, the basis for salvation is Jesus and what he has done, full stop. Not Jesus plus anything else. Now, I'm not aware of many folks today insisting on circumcision. But in a variety of ways, the church has fallen into that same trap of trying to add something else on to the work of Jesus. And so we get viewpoints like you can only be a Christian if you follow Jesus and if you speak in tongues, or if you can only be a, a Christian if you uh, follow Jesus and enjoy the kind of songs that I do. Um, you can only be a Christian if you follow Jesus and have a proper attitude about decency and respect. Or you can only follow Jesus, you can only be a Christian if you follow Jesus and have the same kind of exuberance as I do, or Jesus plus being anti-abortion, Jesus and plus being pro-monarchy, Jesus plus you've been baptized, or whatever. Now, some of these things are more important than others. Some we might have more sympathy for than others. But the point is that when we say salvation is following Jesus plus something else, what we do is say Jesus is not good enough. And it denies the gospel, which is saying the salvation from A to Z is a work of God and about the grace of God. And so for the church to have concluded in Acts 15 that circumcision was essential would not have been the church just hanging on to its tradition. It would have been a rejection of Jesus and his gospel. That's the key issue at stake. So that's the first thing. When we have debates about what we wear, how we do things, it's not just to look at these things themselves, but to say, is there a principle behind them? Is there a key issue here? Secondly, we learn from this chapter that we need to be clear about the basis for knowing God's will. Did you notice the conversation in Acts 15? Now, remember, they've come together to consider this question about whether we have to insist on the, the non-Jews being circumcised. That's why they're meeting. The conversation in Acts 15 is not along the lines of, do you know, I quite like a good circumcision service. Well, circumcision is something that we've always done. Or, you know, I, I would really miss it if we stopped having circumcision. The conversation doesn't go along the lines like that at all. The church, then, is not to be guided by our ideas and preferences and tastes, but rather is to be a look at what the Lord himself is doing. And that's what Peter directs them to in verses 7 to 9. God has been working amongst the Gentiles. He has accepted them. He has, verse 8, given them the Holy Spirit. He's not discriminated, therefore, verse 9. So who are we? to put other rules onto the Gentiles. And then James, the brother of Jesus, in verses 13 and following, takes them back to the Scriptures. And so the church debate is not about 
some preferences. I quite like it this way, or I quite like that way, or I think this is the way it should be, or this is what I've always done. It goes to say, what is God doing in the world, and what are the Scriptures teaching? Again, how often that has not been the basis on which the church has conducted its business. And so, for example, in these days when we're having to talk about church unions and church um, and so on, and then so often it comes down to rows about which building. And the, issue, the frustrating thing there amongst that, well, one of the frustrating things is that that's a backward-looking thing. I, we want our building because that's where I was married or because that's where my children were baptized or whatever. It's backward-looking. Rather than saying, what would actually be most effective and useful for doing mission today? Or, I was partly, only very partly when I was on holiday looking at some of the um, debates in the General Assembly, and um, I was embarrassed and ashamed on the Wednesday of the General Assembly, um, when in one of the debates, um, Scripture Union were given a hard time. And I noticed, as I followed what I did of the debate, that those who were arguing against the position the Scripture Union were taking advanced not one single biblical reason for what they were saying. For our Scripture Union was saying, well, we feel we have to stick to the position of the Bible. And it's shameful and embarrassing that Scripture Union were coming under attack not by secularists, not by atheists, but from within the own Christian church. Shameful. Because people were pushing a personal preference and agenda and not the teaching of Scripture. We are to take all that we seek to be And all that we seek to do to that judgment bar of what does God want here and we best discern that through paying attention to his spirit, his work into the world and to the clear teaching of scripture. Not our personal agendas. So one, we have to identify what's the key issue. Two, we have to be clear about the basis for knowing God's will. And thirdly and finally, we have to seek the peace and the well-being of the body of Christ. Now, given the position taken at the council, they've come down in the position that they're not going to insist that the Gentiles have to be circumcised. Given that they've taken that on biblical grounds and in terms of what God's doing in the world, it might seem strange in verse 20 that they should write to the Gentiles and say, by the way, I want you to abstain from food polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. Why, why, having sort of thrown out circumcision, do they then say, by the way, we want you to keep these rules? Well, it seems, I think, that they are brought in just as because they're trying to keep the peace of the body of Christ. They're trying not to upset the consciences of of those who are having a hard time readjusting to a new way of looking at things. For these other things, there wasn't the same issue at stake about salvation through Jesus alone, and so they were prepared to let some things slide and just say, for the peace of the body of Christ, we'll go with you. 
Is that how we, again, govern and decide what we'll do as church for the sake of the body of Christ? This is what we will do. Because still there are followers of Jesus who overlook that kind of consideration of what would be best for the body of Christ and insist on what they want or what they feel entitled to. Can come down to matters as mundane as where people sit on a Sunday, insisting on using an offering rather than a standing, a standing order for no good reason, what we give our effort or support to, and so on and so on. The criteria is not just what do I like, what, what's good for the rest of the body of Christ. So these then are the three criteria. Identify if there's an underlying issue at stake. Be clear about the basis for knowing God's will and seek the peace and the well-being of the body of Christ. And the issue arose in Acts 15 because, as I was saying, the followers of Jesus were reaching out to others. And this reaching out to others is still the church's marching orders to make disciples. And like these early believers in Acts chapter 15, that will involve rethinking some cherished views, re-evaluating some practices, changing ways of doing things so that others can be reached for Christ. We have to face the reality that often what has put people off following has not been Jesus himself or his message, but rather the way that his followers have shared Jesus, and particularly the way that at times we have given the impression that folks first have to conform to our preferences before they can be part of the fellowship. Now, the Apostle Paul was there in Acts chapter 15. And and whether or not he said much in the debate, we don't know. But later on in the New Testament, we have in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's explanation about his principles, which fit in so well with Acts 15. For he says there, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. The Apostle Paul could put his hand on his heart and say that. I don't think much of the contemporary church could put their hands on their hearts and say that. We've not had that same passion to share the good news of Jesus. And too often it's been, well, we'll go this far, but we're not giving up this because I like this. We'll do it that way because I want it that way. Rather than that consideration that says, what furthers, what advances the mission of Christ, what helps us reach beyond what we already have and know? 
So do you think in terms of what suits you? I like that, if, and if I like it, it's good, and if I don't like it, it's not. Or will we look at things in terms of what might help best share the gospel? What would you give up to make the faith, the pattern of church life, more accessible to non-believers? How does that compare with Christ giving his all for us? And huffiness or non-cooperation or non-participation are really unworthy of the church and unworthy of Jesus. Especially when they are based on something other than these three clear principles that we see in Acts 15. Concern for the salvation of others. That's the issue. Focus on what God is doing and what the Scripture is teaching. And thirdly, seeking the peace and the well-being of the body of Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God, the early church were willing to take that big step. They were more used to circumcision than we have been used to anything. They've been going on for thousands of years. It was much more uniform, much more set in who they were, and yet they were prepared to say, hold on a minute. God is doing a new thing. God's doing a different thing. And we see in the Scriptures the way that that's fitting and unfolding. And that's so much better, so much other than at times when we've um, stuck to, oh no, I want it that way, stuck to our preferences. Help us be willing to bring all to the, these concerns about salvation and salvation for others. Activity and the teaching of you through your word and the peace and the good of the body of Christ. Help us to let go where we need to let go, to pick up where we need to pick up and help us to be increasingly a people seeking to share that good news about Jesus not because it's nice or because it suits us, but because it's salvation itself. And in his name we pray. Amen.